beginning in chapter 2, verse 6, I believe it is, through the end of chapter 2, is a passage where Habakkuk basically proclaims woes upon people. This is dangerous. Here's something you ought to be concerned about. Um, Be careful. So the second half of chapter 2 is about that. Chapter 3 is Habakkuk's prayer. So it divides up pretty evenly that way. We're going to spend most of our time looking at this dialogue between Habakkuk and God that begins in chapter 1 and continues into the first few verses of chapter 2. I'd like to take a real tangent, though, before I do that. The title of this message is My Complaints. I haven't written too many letters of complaints. I can probably only think of maybe two where I wrote a letter off to someone, a business that uh, I felt merited some kind of uh, response. And I do it very cautiously. I don't do it very often. Um, When I do, I usually sit on it for a couple of days to make sure that it's not in the throes of my anger and frustration. Um, And then if it feels right, I might send it off. Well, this particular occasion, though I've done that on a few occasions, was not one of those times. This was a letter I was sending to the customer service department, and it was telling a story that in many ways was a story of gratitude. It wasn't really my story. It was my father's story. My dad was interested in sending off a letter to an organization that he had um, liked for decades. Now, I could probably give you about 50 guesses, and you wouldn't get to which organization this was that has captured my attention, the attention of my father over these years. Um, I could even tell you that it was a hamburger joint, and I'd give you multiple guesses, and you'd probably struggle with knowing which hamburger joint. In 1921, a company called White Castle began... Apparently, some of you are familiar with White Castle. Many of you are not. It's a company that makes tiny little hamburgers with square hamburger patties and square buns and four little holes in the hamburger patties that are for one of two reasons. They say it's for um, it to cook straight through so they don't have to flip the patties, those four little holes, let it cook evenly. The rest of us think that it's just so the grease can drip through those four little holes and not be all over the bun. It is, I think, the term originated slider for um, White Castle hamburgers. And I had somebody after first service who remembers as a little kid that they were running a special five White Castles for a quarter. And he and his teammates on his baseball team would sit on the curb and eat their five White Castles because you buy them by the bag. My dad in 1942 was 16 years old, and he was making the transfer from a trolley car to a bus, and right there on Grand River at the trolley station was the White Castle place that if you've not seen it, it's white and it looks like a castle. (laughs) That's the name White Castles. My dad was hooked and continues to be hooked to this day. So much so that I had the opportunity um, uh, 
about a week and a half, two weeks ago, to visit my parents for a few days and help them out on some things. Sit down at the lunch table where my father, who now has to provide a little bit more for my mother's needs, she's no longer able to cook for herself or for my dad. And my dad has, if there's a number less than zero, zero cooking skills. I never remember any meal ever that my father has prepared for me, ever. But now, my dad, every lunch, having purchased a carton of frozen White Castles that they keep in their freezer, pulls out two White Castle hamburgers, puts on an extra slice of provolone cheese, a few extra pickles on the side for my mom, microwaves them up, and sits down for lunch. Every lunch, seven days a week. While I was there, I prepared a really nice soup and something to go with the soup. I had to keep it warmed till dinner because lunch was two White Castle hamburgers with extra provolone cheese. I, during the mid-80s, um, I don't know if it's a testament to White Castle or God's miraculous preservation <laughs> gifts uh, to us. I sent off a little bit of a story to uh, White Castle and about two months ago, I received, because I mailed the letter, and my dad, because it was about him, a letter from White Castle that says, thank you for sharing your story with us. You have been nominated for the White Castle Cravers Hall of Fame. <laughs> my dad being inducted into the White Castle Craver Nation Hall of Fame. It came with a little pin, and it says, wear your pen proudly. So this morning, I am wearing my White Castle pen. My father received one as well. Now, what in the world does this have to do with Habakkuk? We're going to come back to this, but I do want to ask you a question before we leave. Just this question of, what do you think it took for the White Castle management to purchase what is not really a fine piece of jewelry, but is a piece of metal that has uh, been painted and massively produced, and a card, no signature, no handwritten anything, just a card, and postage. My guess is the most expensive piece of all of this is the postage that it cost. And for three weeks, every phone conversation I had with my father had to do with his induction into the Craver Nation Hall of Fame. <laughs> every, the sum total of the conversation, we didn't get to anything else. So much so that on the third conversation, he wanted to dictate to me a follow-up letter to Columbus, home office of White Castle. Interesting strategy on the part of White Castle and endearing not only to him, but to a son to see a smile on his face for that particular month. Let's go back to Habakkuk. Habakkuk. Habakkuk starts off writing complaints to the customer service department of heaven. However you want to view this, Habakkuk is voicing 
Habakkuk's complaints. There are probably ways in which he's doing it on behalf of the people he represents. But he's also representing his own heart that is angry, that is hurt, that is distressed. It probably helps to understand the context, the historical framework. When is he writing? What's happening to his neighborhood, to his neighbors, to the surrounding area, to his loved homeland? We don't have an exact date as to when this book was written. But there are some pieces that help us piece together when it was likely written. And so, to understand the historical context of this, I'd like to ask you to picture in your mind the Middle East. So, the Mediterranean Sea, and then that one side, the Middle East. And in around early 600 B.C., 610, 612 B.C. We have the Babylonians, also referred to here as the Chaldees, who are rising into power in the Middle East. And they're beginning to push down toward Palestine. The Egyptians from the south have fortified some of those areas. But around 609 B.C. and in the years that followed, the stronghold that Egypt had up near the Euphrates River was giving way. They had made an effort to protect the Assyrians from being overcome by the Babylonians. But it was becoming obvious that they weren't going to be able to stand up to the strength, to the power of the Babylonians. And so over time, Egypt began to retreat. And this left Palestine open for the Babylonians to come in and to take over. We find around 598 an invasion that happens of Palestine and Jerusalem. And then, and I think it was 586, Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple destroyed as well. Prior to that destruction, prior to the invasion down into Jerusalem, but after it became obvious that those from the south weren't going to be able to stand up against those Babylonians, Habakkuk writes. He sees what's happening. His complaint, God, don't you see what's happening? There's no justice. And if there's anything that somebody calls justice, it's perverted justice. It's a justice of their own making. Nobody's paying attention to the Torah anymore, to your laws and precepts anymore. If they have any, kinds of sta- any kind of a standard at all, it's a standard of their own making. And so the justice that comes out of that is a perverted justice. Some of this that even feels a little bit sarcastic when Habakkuk voices his complaints. Saying, God, apparently you can't even stand to look in the direction of injustice. Because it appears as if you have turned your eyes in the other direction. So we have Habakkuk raising these 
complaints to God. Let me step back for a moment, if I could, and address the issue of asking very difficult, hard questions. I think there are some of us who sometimes have anxiety that asking hard questions betrays our doubt. That somehow it shows us as being doubting people. I propose to you that that's just the opposite. That it's only someone who has a deep abiding faith. And when they look out at the circumstances around them, and the outward circumstances don't match what they deeply hold as their beliefs and understanding of God, that it's out of that place that the deepest, hardest questions come. Now, people of no faith can ask questions. They can engage in debate. But the questions that they ask don't arise from the depths of pain and hurt and, and struggle. They're simply debating techniques. But the hard, difficult questions are usually asked by people of faith who are struggling with how God is or is not revealing God's self in the moment. So don't be afraid of tough questions. Don't think that somehow it says you have no faith. In fact, it may mean just the opposite. The depths of your faith lead you to difficult places with questions that don't always have easy answers. In this passage, Habakkuk complains of injustice. We've talked for a couple of weeks of how injustice and idolatry are inextricably connected. So as I look at this passage, the question that comes to my mind is, if Habakkuk is complaining about injustice, I wonder where the idolatry is. Scripture reveals it. Verse 11 Habakkuk says that for those people who are coming and invading our land, their strength has become their God. That's an interesting notion. Their strength has become their God. The idolatry of depending on my own resources, my own abilities, my own talents, inevitably leads to injustice. I don't know where you might fall in this story. You might be the one with Habakkuk who is voicing the complaints. God, where are you? Where are you when I need you? Where are you in the midst of what's taking place? Have you turned your face? Are you looking a different direction? Are you blind to what's taking place? That may be where you are this morning. There might be some of us who are actually on the other side. We're in a very kind of faux righteousness. We have slowly moved toward depending on our own strength instead of depending on God. We have numerous resources. I, I look across this crowd and see amazing talent and gifts, skills, resources. It's so easy 
to see that as our strength. That eventually that becomes our God. We may not state it verbally, but the way we live has proven that we rely on our strength for our resource as opposed to God as our resource. We've relied on the gifts God has given instead of the gift giver. And as soon as we do that, we move into a place of idolatry where our strengths have become our God. It happens in very subtle ways. It calls for us to be watchful, careful, persistent in prayer, humble, listening for God. So here, in this passage, we have Habakkuk's complaints. We have Habakkuk speaking in ways about the voice of God who says, here's what's going to happen. I'm I'm going to deal with this issue. There are those who are going to come down from the north and they're going to take over and they laugh in the face of kings and they pay no attention to rulers. They can take over fortified cities. I think Habakkuk's response is legitimate. He says, in his own words, he says, the solution seems worse than the problem, God. That doesn't seem like any solution at all. How does that help matters? I took my phone in a couple of weeks ago into the customer service area of the phone shop. And um, the problem was that of all of the things the phone does, the phone part of it wasn't working. So the thing for which it's named, there were a lot of other things it could still do, including being a doorstop, if I said it there. But the phone stuff wasn't working. Relatively new, I walked in, and I, I'm not good at explaining the problems. I basically said that. Here's the phone, and the phone... St- stuff. It's not working right. Could you help me with this? And the wonderful customer service person took it, looked at it, not nearly long enough. It doesn't matter to me if a customer service person knows immediately the problem. I don't like them to so quickly come to a conclusion when it's taken me hours poring over this, trying to figure out what could be wrong. I would like it to take more than 30 seconds for the individual to have an answer. That's just me. Nevertheless, she took a quick glance at it. Her response was, Sir, did you buy the insurance package that you were offered when you first purchased this? No, I did not. Oh, that's too bad. It'll cost $299 to get this fixed. What? Are you serious? $299? The solution for my problem was worse than the problem. The phone that this phone replaced, that really only did phone things, still worked. And I said to her, you know what? I'll just use that old phone for my phone stuff and I'll use this for any other stuff I might need. 
thank you, but I'm not going to pay $299 for this. And I left. About a week later, I decided I can't make matters worse. So I started fidgeting around with connections and things. And lo and behold, it started working, and it's still working, and I still have my $299. I haven't written a letter to anyone. Everything's okay. I'm not complaining anymore. But the solution to my problem was worse than the problem. That's what Habakkuk is saying to God. God, what you are saying doesn't seem like anything gets better. Do you not see what we are facing? God responds in chapter 2. One of the beautiful things that I like at the beginning of chapter 2 is Habakkuk's statement of what he's going to do after having voiced his complaints. He says, I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. In other words, I'm going to go up in the watchtower and wait. I will look to see what God will say to me, what answer I am to give, what answer I will receive to this complaint, or in some translations, what answer I am to give to this complaint. Some posture this last sentence is Habakkuk's response, others the heavenly response. But the beauty for me of this opening verse of chapter 2 is the complaints have been voiced. Now I'm going to wait for a response. How often I voice my complaints, I give no chance for a response. If it's to God, it's God. I just, I'm pretty ticked off at this. And I go on about my business. I stay in God's presence long enough so that God might get an earful of what I have to say and think that that's the end of the matter. Habakkuk models for me something dramatically different. My deep heart complaint, God, now let me just wait on you. And God's response God responds by saying, okay, I want you to write this down. Write it on tablets. Use handwriting that's large enough so that if a runner comes by, he can read it while he's still running. Depending on the translation, the language here really speaks to our modern-day culture of saying, put it on a billboard so nobody misses this. And here's what I want to say, saith the Lord. The revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. There is a statement here at the beginning of chapter 2 in this dialogue that for me speaks a couple really important lessons. First lesson for me is this. I'm caught in a framework of time that God is not caught in. God can create more time if God needs to. We have scriptural evidence that God has in the past. If God needs to, God could do so again. God's outside of time. It seems to me that Satan is the one who's always rushed. Satan's time is short. Satan's backed into a corner. Oftentimes, when I'm in a decision-making place and I feel backed into a corner, I ask myself, 
whose characteristics are this most like? God or Satan's? God, God's not in my same time frame. And God's statement to Habakkuk is, the arch of my justice is sure. I won't be thwarted. I haven't been thrown off, says God. My time frame has been set. I have not turned away. I am not looking the other direction. I know what's taking place. And my direction is sure. I sometimes get lost in my moments. It reminds me so much of what it had to feel like for the disciples on Saturday. We talk so little about Saturday. Friday, Christ crucified. All that I had hoped, the way I thought all of this was going to play out, crumbled. Sunday morning has not yet come. What did Saturday feel like for the disciples? I have the feeling it felt a lot like some of your days feel like. Where you know what's taken place on Friday. You've seen the events. You've watched the Babylonians do whatever Babylonians do. You've not yet seen the fulfillment of God's promise. There's not yet been a resurrection, an empty tomb. The hope hasn't been justified. You stand in Saturday and say, Oh God, have you not heard? Do you not see? Are you aware of what your servant is facing? I would propose that a lot of life is lived in Saturday. And God's message to Habakkuk is, I am completely aware. No one knows better than I do. And I speak of things that are to come, not on your time frame, but that which I have set, says the Lord. I think for me, there's another powerful teaching that comes out of here. It, to be truthful, takes me back to <laughs> that opening story of White Castle. It is a message that, for me, speaks about the questions that we ask and then how we respond to those questions. It takes me to the New Testament an example of how questions get turned around by the master. The teacher of the law came to Jesus and said, who is my neighbor? Really wanting to justify himself for who he treats well and who he doesn't treat well. Jesus responds by telling the great story of the good Samaritan. The Samaritan, the most unlikely hero of the story, just like White Castle is the most unlikely hero of any hamburger story. The Good Samaritan comes and takes care of the person who's hurting. But what Jesus does is Jesus turns the question from who is my neighbor 
to who is acting neighborly. Once we come to the conclusion of who is acting neighborly, for that individual, the other question is a moot point. When I have said in my heart that I'm going to act as Christ has called me to act, loving as Christ has called me to love, then I am no longer looking to differentiate between who is neighbor and who is not neighbor because it arises from within. Jesus changes the question. The same thing here happens to Habakkuk. Habakkuk asks the question, do you not see the injustice that is occurring? And God's response, verse 4, talking about those who are puffed up, those who desires are not upright. But the righteous will live by faithfulness. So Habakkuk says, I'm longing for justice. I'm longing for freedom. I'm longing to make choices about my homeland the way I want to make choices about my homeland. I'm longing to be treated in a particular way. And the Lord responds to Habakkuk and says, then act that way. Live justly. Live righteously. Live faithfully. Live like a good neighbor. Live the grace that you've received. Because when you do that, the question changes. So the call to us is to spend time with the toughest questions and to stay with God long enough to allow those questions to begin to shift take away all of the bottom line profit dollar of why someone might I become a fan because they took the time to make my father feel special and as a result made our interaction special crazy that white castle hamburgers would be God's way to teach me to change my question and to teach me how to live in just ways, in righteous ways, in graceful ways, in setting my sights not on my own time frame, but on God's time frame, in a storyline that's bigger than mine, but is far greater than I could ever conceive. And God has invited me to be part of that story. What a privilege. This morning, you're invited to the table of grace. A table where we have the opportunity to voice with Habakkuk the toughest questions we have. To bring to this place the most difficult circumstances And to simply say, God, not on my own strength, for I have been idolatrous at times. Not in my own ways, but in your grace. Milton, come and lead us in communion. You just heard the question from Habakkuk.
My hope is that this week you will be praying for one another. Um, this last weekend, our church uh, worked through two memorial services. Myron Tweed having passed away, I encourage you to pray for Polly, um, his wife and her family. And uh, what a blessing to have the Johnson family with us this morning. Uh, Dwight's wife, Betsy, having passed away, please lift up Dwight and all of the family members in the days and weeks to come. Many of us live in Saturday today. find it very interesting, though, that for the Hebrew people, that was the Sabbath day. What is it for us to live in this place? Knowing what Friday is done, still fixing our eyes on the hope of Sunday. May God bless us as we live in this time and space to live out the good news of God's grace to us, whatever our circumstances. Let us be the kingdom of heaven wherever God leads us this week. God be with you.